You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are glad that you're here. So as we get started, can we just, uh, does everybody know what a hoagie is? Okay, some of you do, some of you don't. Okay, a hoagie is basically a sub, but people that live on the East Coast, uh, they call it a hoagie. It's a sub, all right? But I used to work at this hoagie shop that uh, when I was finishing high school, first starting college, and um, it was like a cheesesteak place, like uh, Philly cheese, everything was like Philadelphia, whatever. Anyway, so uh, the way it worked was, the days I didn't have class, I'd, I'd work, you know, lunch through dinner. So there'd be a lunch rush, and lunch there was really busy. Then there'd be a, a, a lull from about 3 to 5, and then we'd have from about 5 to 8 or so a pretty, pretty steady uh, dinner rush. And so what was supposed to happen is, is that after the lunch rush, we were supposed to prepare and get everything prepped for dinner. Um, Paul, who was the owner, he would leave and then come back when dinner was starting. And um, the problem is, is that on this particular day, um, we didn't do that. Instead, we decided to play poker. And, um, and so this is before I became a Christian. But uh, anyway, so one day uh, we're, we're playing and uh, someone would sit out a hand because the phone was ringing and then we, they'd take the order, put the order on the line and then come back in. So, and this was like an intense poker tournament that we were doing. And so then we had, the entire line was full of orders. The phones were ringing off the hook and we're playing poker. And it wasn't that big of a deal because Paul was in Delaware, so, you know, whatever. Um, there's, and, and so then we heard this slam at the back door, and it was Paul who was very much not in Delaware. And, uh, and then he, he freaked out when he saw what was going on, the cards, the money on the table, all the orders, the phone ringing off the hook. He started throwing pots and pans. He started saying some words I can't use because I'm Christian. And, uh, and, and it was, and he freaked out, threatened to fire us and all that. And ever since that day, he would say this thing. He'd say, I'm leaving, but I'll be back when you least expect it. Now, let's fast forward a few months. It's a Friday night. I'm off. But I'm driving, and I'm driving past the hoagie shop, and I'm like, man, I'm so hungry. So I decide to stop at the hoagie shop. I go behind the counter. My friend Drew was working. Um, I go behind the counter. I make myself some mozzarella sticks. And then I'm just, you know, listen, it's like all, one of us got hired and then we hired all of our friends. And so that's what, who was working there. So I'm just hanging out and I'm eating mozzarella sticks. Well, all of a sudden, about 10 minutes later, Paul walks in. And Paul asks my friend Drew, who was working that night, why he felt it was okay for me to go behind the counter, make myself mozzarella sticks, and then eat them without paying for it. And we were like, dude, how did you know? You know, this is before people had like cameras installed. This is like barely after electricity was invented. And I'm like, Paul, how did you know? He says, I've been watching you guys from across the street with my binoculars. And, uh, and uh, so, true story. And, uh, and, and then he made Drew pay for the mozzarella sticks, which I was totally okay with. And, um, and, and we're like, Paul, hey, we're sorry, man, but by the way, that binocular thing, that's weird. And uh, now, the, the, the challenge is, and I think we all recognize it, that had I known, had I known he was going to come in, I mean, we would have acted differently. 
But because we weren't living with the certainty of his return, that's why we were just doing whatever we wanted. And so we find ourselves in message, if you can believe this, message 38 of a series through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're in a section that theologians call the Olivet Discourse. That is a private teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples on the Mount of Olives on the topic of end times. And so we, it started with the question, Jesus at the beginning of Matthew 24 uh, the disciples are showing him the. They're, they're showing him the buildings of the temple. Jesus says, "Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another." The disciples are taken back by this, and they ask three questions. They say, "When will this happen? What then? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age?" Right? Those are the three things they want to know. And so, and the thing that Jesus has been telling his disciples is not just what the world is going to be like. Now he's going to drill down and get very specific and tells us to be ready. But the challenge is, is that even though he wants us to be ready, a lot of times we aren't. And, and, and listen, I remember when I was single, I remember saying, Jesus, I want you to come back. I remember praying this, but if you could just come back after I get married. I'd like to get married. If, if, I, if you could just come back, that would be great. If just a few days after I get married, I'm cool with that. And, um, and then we got married, and I was like, Jesus, I want you to come back, but if you could just come back, like, after we have kids, because, I, you know, we want to have kids, and want to be parents, and that would be great. If you could wait till then. And now I have kids, and I'm like, Jesus, come back anytime. <laughs> Any, just beam me up. I mean, I'm ready. Uh, these kids drive me nuts. And so, <laughs> now, what... What Jesus is going to tell us, and this is, I think, part of uh, the, the, the undergirding of all of this teaching that he does in chapter 24 and 25, is that what we believe is ultimately seen in our actions. That those who believe that Jesus could come back today live a certain way, and those who don't live a different way. And, 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 the, and the challenge is, and this is the, the thing that's going to undergird all of this, is that our behavior is reflected in our beliefs. We can say that we agree with something, but if we don't do anything about it, the reality is, is that we don't believe it. And, and, and we all know that to be the case, right? Does a, pers- a smoker believe that smoking is going to kill them? Well, yes, in theory. But they only quit when that becomes an actual truth to them. That belief changes behavior. It's true in relationships. Is it love just because someone says they love you? Or do we have to back that statement up with action? Well, of course we get all understand that. And it's true for every area of our lives. And so what, what should living in light of Jesus' return do? Some people think it should make us afraid. I disagree. I, I mean, if the, the hope of Jesus' return is that we become survivalists and live off thousands of cans of spam and tuna fish, I don't know that that's too exciting. And by the way, I mean, if I'm not a survivalist, I, I, I'm going to tell you what I believe in just a minute, but um, if you are a survivalist, you've got you to think better things about dinner. I mean, you can't live the rest of your life on spam and tuna fish. We've got to broaden this, this thing. So anyway, but... The point is, is that the reality of his return should cause us to live differently. And this is what will make every difference. It'll make every difference in our relationships, every difference in our interactions and our decisions. And that's what Jesus is going to show us. So we're going to start in chapter 24 and verse 36. Now, it's going to be a little strange the way I do it. Um, In your notes, it just reads all the way through. But I'm going to read verse 36. I'm going to skip 37, 38, 39. That's kind of its own animal. And then I'm going to read 40 through 44. So if, if you're reading in your Bible and like, hey, why did you skip that? I'm coming back to it in a moment. 
So look at verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, verse 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And if you pause there and give me your attention, we're going to look at three things in, in relation to are we, are we ready or not for Jesus' return. But the first is this, is that the time of Jesus' return is unexpected for everyone. And that's the point that he's making. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Now, there is some confusion on the following verses, and that is the people, you know, two people are in the field, one is taken, the other left, two people grinding at the mill, one's taken, the other, like, okay, is being taken the good thing? Is being left the bad thing? We're not really sure what, what's, what's happening. Uh, the good news is, is that we don't have to speculate. Jesus, in another place, talked about this and gave us a little more detail. He said this in Luke chapter 17, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, that night two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. And then the disciples asked, where, Lord? And he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. I don't know if you've ever seen a vulture at work. About eight years ago, one morning, my daughter Mia was about eight, and um, we opened the blinds in our dining room, and Mia says, Dad, there's a bird in our yard. And I look over, and it is a giant vulture. And I'm like, Mia, that's a vulture. She's like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, yeah, it is pretty cool. And then I thought, hold on, why is there a vulture in my backyard? And now I walk outside, and we have these pavers. We had a pool in our old house, and so we had these pavers. And I see a trail of blood all over the pavers. And I get to the end of the trail, and there is this huge possum that is wounded and bleeding profusely. Now, apparently the vulture had taken a few bites out of the possum, and this dude was a goner. And then he was just like, <clears throat> you know, he stopped moving. I mean, it was, it was over. And so now I have a problem. And the problem is I have a dead possum in my backyard. There's blood all over my pavers. And by the way, I've got 50 people coming over to my house the next day for Olivia's birthday party. So I devise a plan. Now, I'm going to tell you my plan, but we have to have an agreement. The agreement is that you don't judge me. All right? Now, I might tell you the story, and you're like, I can't believe you did that. Like, no, I didn't do that. 2014, Bob did that. And, uh, and if you're like, well, I have a problem with that. Well, I have a lot of problems with 2014, Bob, too, but I'm not going to air those out to you right now. But anyway, so my point is, I'm not saying I would do that now. I'm in a different place emotionally, but that's, so I'm going to tell you what I did. So, um, okay, uh, in my old house, I lived at the end of the community. I was the last house in the community, so we had a retaining wall. Now, the way it works is everything on my side of the wall was my problem. Everything on the other side of the wall was the HOA's problem. So I had this thought, if I can move this possum about five feet, um, onto the other side of the wall, the HOA will have to deal with this carcass and, not, and then I can just have my party. So I go to my garage and I grab a shovel. We're withholding judgment. Okay. So 
I go to the garage and then I come around and then my daughter sees me approaching with, an, uh, with, with the shovel and she's screaming and banging on the window. She's like, dad, don't do it. It's not worth your life. And I, I think she thinks I'm going to somehow battle the vulture. Like I, the vulture and I are living in harmony. Um, uh, and anyway, so I'm trying to scoop up the possum and you know, move him into the HOA's territory. So anyway, now, as I go to scoop him up, the possum, this thing turns around and sticks its teeth and is, you know, does like a roar or whatever. And I am so startled. I yell. I'm so startled by it. Or according to my daughter, I screamed like a girl, and, uh, which was very rude. Anyway, by the way, you know that phrase, playing possum? Yeah, that's a real thing. So anyway... So I go inside because I realize I'm dealing with a deadly animal. So I call a critter removal service, and I'm on the phone with the guy, and I'm like, hey, listen, I, I know, I, I don't know your level of expertise, but I'm just telling you, I've been out there with this thing. This thing is deadly, all right? This is really a two-man job. If I had someone else, I probably could, but I'm going to help you when you get here. He's like, all right, sir, thanks so much. So he gets there. He gets to my house. He walks in. He has no tools whatsoever. Um, and then he has a cage. He walks, and I'm like, hey, all right, this is it. Now let's approach it. And he's like, okay, let me, let me just, let me give it a try, all right? I'm, uh, yeah, all right. He walks over, grabs a possum by the tail, opens the thing up, drops it in, cage, and walks out. And he's like, hey, that'll be $99. And I'm like, what? 99 bucks? You were here for 30 seconds. And, and I thought, you know, if I, that was the case, maybe I could have left him for the party. And then, anyway, so that didn't work out. I don't really know what happened to the possum after that. I like to think he received medical attention and is now living with his family in Boca Raton. So, now, here's the point. Vultures show up when there is a dead body. And the idea that Jesus is giving is that th these uh, people are taken to judgment. We'll see this in a second when um, Jesus talks about the flood. Uh, we'll see this also in chapter 25, that there are some who are taken to judgment and others who are left to enter into the kingdom of God. That will be a much broader topic that we talk about uh, next week. But there's another thing I want to talk about before we move on, and that is what Jesus says in verse 36, where he says, no man knows the day or the hour, not even the angels. The gospel of Mark adds this phrase. He says, not even the son. Well, what does that mean? Um, this has troubled some people. Like, how could Jesus not know the day of, of, of his return. And, and I mean, if Jesus, we really believe that Jesus is God, right? Part of the Trinity, then how could he not know something? All right. So let me, let me explain something. It's, I mean, the idea of the incarnation that Jesus was fully God and fully man is a mystery, but there are some things that we do understand. Now, let me give you a passage in the book of Philippians chapter two. Here's what we learn. Um, Paul is talking about dealing with conflict and his challenge is that we should be like Jesus and, and have humility. And that's how we really deal with a lot of conflict. But in saying all of this, he gives us this theological truth that's really important. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, if you have your notes, you circle this phrase, made himself nothing. And here's near it, I want you to write this Greek word. The word is 
kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S. The word kenosis means to empty. And the idea is, is that for Jesus, when he became human, he had to set aside certain divine privileges to become human. And I'll give you an example. One of the attributes of God is that God is omnipresent. That is, God is present everywhere. This is seen uh, in, in Psalm 139. David says, where can I go to flee your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. Right? There's nowhere that is outside of the presence of God. However, when Jesus became a man in the incarnation, he had to lay aside omnipresence to be in one body at, at the time for, for, for his earthly ministry. And so, and then for whatever reason, we see that the knowledge of his return is something that he set aside uh, during his time on earth. What I do find amazing is, is that Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. You know what no one knows means in the Greek? It means no one. And it does mean in Hebrew. It means no one. And it's amazing to me that every few years, some Yahoo shows up, and he's like, I've got my calculator, and I've calculated the day and the hour of Jesus' return. And it's like, dude, what part of no man knows the day or the hour do you not understand? Yeah, but I've got, you know, and I, remember, I became a Christian in 1993, so it was just about 30 years ago. And um, right around uh, 1993, there was a, a guy named Harold Camping, and he wrote a book called 1994. And he had calculated, I mean, this is a big book, and he had calculated that Jesus was coming back September of 1994. And I remember seeing the book, because there was a Christian bookstore by, down the street from my house, and um, I saw it in the bargain bin section in 1995. Because, um, you know, when it didn't happen, it didn't, people weren't really that interested. Um, he, came, he came back around about 10 years ago, and he predicted October 21st, 2011 was the day, which I was fine with. October 21st is my birthday, and um, it didn't happen. So all those carbs I ate, they counted, and that was rude. And uh, so anyway, I read about that, you know, the thing didn't happen. He was so, he was so depressed about it, and uh, someone came to cheer him up, and he's like, hey, man, don't worry. It's not the end of the world. And... Um, I love that joke. I love it more than I should, and it makes me laugh every time I say it. So, <laughs> but the point of all of this, and here's the key, the point of all of this isn't to create a chart and figure out what day. The point that Jesus is making is to stay vigilant. That's the literal translation of that word watch. It doesn't mean to observe. It means to be engaged. And as Christians, listen, sometimes we're a little too disengaged. And um, a life that is vigilant means that we are filtering everything through the lens of Jesus's return. The words we use, the decisions we make, the level of integrity that we have. Why? Because when I believe, when we believe that Jesus is coming, we live a life that's ready for his return. All right. Now let's go to the verses we skipped. In verse 37, he says, but as the days of Noah were, so also the coming of the Son of Man will be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing I want you to note is that the return of Jesus, the time of the return of Jesus feels like normal life. 
Um, Jesus says that it's going to be like the days of Noah. People are given in marriage. People are eating and drinking. Everybody's operating a normal life. Now, let me just say this, if I can sidebar for a second. I know there's people, especially in, in modern culture, that are like, well, I can't believe that you believe that there's a dude named Noah and you believe that there was actually an ark. Do you know that over 90 different cultures tell this story of a worldwide flood and one family that survived? And by the way, these cultures have no connection to each other. Whenever you have people all over the world telling the same story that have no connection to each other, that's something to consider and look at. But that's not even the best reason to believe that there really was a guy named Noah and there really was a flood. I believe it because Jesus believed it. And I just have this rule. When you rise from the dead, I'm going with you. All right? That's my rule. So Jesus is making a point that everything feels normal. Hey, man, the kids are getting married. Oh, there's this new restaurant we have to try. And so everything feels normal, but under the surface, the culture is rotting. And only those looking for it can see it. And I want you to note that Jesus did, isn't saying like, oh, it was like the ancient times. No, he's saying, uh, he's not even saying like, oh, and like it was in the time of Moses or Isaiah or David. No, he's saying it like the time of Noah. Why? Because there were specific things that were happening in the days of Noah that are like the times of the end. So what were they? I put four things in your notes and I want to cover them quickly. Number one is that it was a time of population explosion. It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Population over the last 150 years is, um, is, is like nothing we've ever seen. From the time of Noah, several thousand years ago, to 1867, that is the time of the Civil War, that's how long it took to get to 1 billion people. On, on, the, on the planet. From 1867 to 1935, which is less than 70 years later, that's when we hit 2 billion people. From 1965 to 1995, um, that's when we got to 6 billion people. Right now, there's 8 billion people on the planet. We are multiplying. By 2050, there will be more than 10 billion people on the planet, which science, some scientists say is beyond capacity. And that's uh, why, uh, you know, they talk about food shortages and that, uh, this is why there's this whole movement to get people to eat bugs. You, you following this? Like, what in the world? Like, you want to eat bugs? That's your business. I'm going with ribeye. You want to eat roach? That's your deal. All right? Let's keep that junk away from me. All right? Now, second thing is it's a time of population explosion. It's also a time, number two, of sexual confusion. Now, let me read you what is probably one of the most bizarre stories in um, the Old Testament. And uh, we will, you know, we'll go all X-Files on this here in a minute. But look at what it says. It says, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, that they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. That is 120 years from this until the flood. Uh, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were also mighty men who were of old, men of renown. All right, so let's stop here for a second. Uh, the phrase sons of God is only used a couple of times in the Bible. It's used here, it's used in the Psalms, it's used in, a book, in the book of Job. Every time it's referring to, the phrase is benai Elohim, it's referring to angels. So what scholars believe, and what I lean towards as well, is that this is a union between 
what are fallen angelic beings and human w- women, and the result are what are called giants, or in the Hebrew it's Nephilim, uh, which means fallen ones. Now, you might say, that's really weird. I'm totally in agreement that it's weird. God agrees that it's weird because that's one of the primary reasons that the flood came. Because um, if you, in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus did not come to save angels. He came to save people, the seed of Abraham. And so he's not coming to save whatever this union produced. And so he's washing this away. And, and that's why we're, we're starting over. Now, a lot can be said about this. And we'll put a tack in it and we'll tackle it uh, further another time. But... The point is, is that this was a time of sexual confusion, and this is the world that you and I live in today. And if you don't agree that we're living in a time of sexual confusion, ask someone how many genders there are. And if more than two fingers go up, we got a problem, all right? And so, now listen, and I'm not saying this to poke fun. I'm saying this because we are living in a society that is completely confused um, about gender, sexuality, and and the like. Um, Now listen, if you're a parent, you know this to be the case. Uh, talking to your kids about sex is a weird conversation. Um, you know you've got to do it because kids need their questions answered, and it should be answered by the people who love them the most. And so, but you know, you're not, basically the way it works is, I know I've got to do it. I delay it as long as possible. I finally decide to do it. I, we stumble through it. And then at the end, we say, if you have any more questions, ask your mom. And that's just, or maybe that's a little more autobiographical. Um, But what's weird is, and this is the thing that I've observed as of late, and listen, I love teachers, um, but I've seen, I watch some teachers now that are just obsessed with the idea of talking to their students about sex and think that somehow it's their right to talk to students about sex. Like, I'm sorry, that just doesn't fly with me. Um, Maybe we focus a little more on, on like reading and math and less on pronouns. Like, what are your preferred pronouns? My kids asked me this the other day. They said, uh, Dad, what would you say if someone asked you what your preferred pronouns are? I would tell them, I don't have pronouns. I have verbs. I'm a man of action. And um, so that's my answer to that. And so I appreciate that. Thank you. And, um, but you know, a study was done a few years ago uh, with, uh, with 10 uh, high school students from 10 industrialized nations. They got tested in several areas. In math, in the United States, we came in 10th, that is last. In science, last. In geography, last. Literature, last. Foreign language skills, last. We came in first in one topic. You know what it was? Self-esteem. It's like we're idiots, but we feel good about it. And uh, so maybe we teach a little more about, you know, math and where all the countries are, a little less about, you know, the sexual stuff to like third graders. Um, Okay, Um, third thing is that it was a time of evil imaginations. In um, Genesis 6, 5, it says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This idea of the intents of the thoughts of his heart or imaginations or literally images Uh, That people were not just thinking evil, but they were engaging in evil through images. This was impossible to even um, understand until our generation. Do you know that a child born today, by the time they're 18 years old, will see more than 100,000 deaths uh, on television, video games, and movies? 
and, and uh, you wonder why people are desensitized to violence. I mean, this is, this is part of it. And um, this, you know, it, we live in a time that no, no matter what type of media you're on, there's some type of pornography and some type of financial scam on there. And by the way, people in our culture will talk about pornography as a sign that we are more sexually free. Um, and this, we think that, and it's just not true. It is killing us as a culture. Pornography addiction is preventing young men and young women from having normal relationships. And this is weird. And listen, this is one of the few times in this church you can hear a pin drop. So since I'm here, let me just take it one step further. Um, that pornography addiction is the leading cause of erectile dysfunction for young men as early as their teens. And do you know what the cure is for this? Shocking. Stop looking at it. And that is, and by the way, this isn't just like pastors and, you know, uh, Christian leaders. These are secular doctors who aren't Christians saying this is killing you and it's keeping you from having a normal relationship in your life. It is the evil imaginations that are killing us. Um, listen, God is not a prude. God invented sex. I know people think Hugh Hefner invented sex, but it was God who invented it. And God also understands where it becomes a blessing and the form in which it becomes a blessing and the form in which it actually hurts us. All right. Let's throttle it back and just talk about violence, okay? And uh, so that's the number we're like, wow, thank you. Well, I was getting intense. Let's just talk about people being murdered. Um, so number four, if you're a note taker, it's, it was a time of widespread violence. In Genesis 6.11, it says the earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. The, the Hebrew word for violence here is the word Hamas. It is the name of uh, the largest terror organization in the Middle East. You know, we hear so much about shootings and bombings. We've almost become desensitized to it. That's how much violence is happening in our world. And you know what Jesus says? He says, everyone is like, we're getting married and we're, you know, hey, we're having a party and man, we got to try that new restaurant. It's going to be business as usual for those who simply cannot make the connection. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And when the door of the ark closed, um, he left and everybody else was carried away into judgment. I, I really believe that's what's going to happen at the end with the rapture of the church. The church is taken and then everybody else is, um, enters this tribulation period and experiences judgment. The church is preaching the gospel, the good news, and they don't want to hear it. And when it happens, you know what's amazing to me is that people will remember and understand. I think of everything that's found in the book of Revelation, to me, the most chilling moment is in chapter 6 when all the seal judgments are opening. And I mean, literally, all hell is breaking loose on earth. And there is this moment when everyone on the earth begins to understand what's happening. In fact, uh, check out what it says. It says this in verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And look at what they say. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Listen, these are people who don't know God, but when all this happens, they will remember what they've been told, and they, it's like, this is not the normal course of life. This is all happening and all coming from God. So what do you do with all of that? Last thing, and then we're done. In verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 1, Jesus tells us a story to kind of wrap all this up. 
He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there's not enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing that, that I want to tell you is that the time of Jesus' return challenges me to be wise and waiting. Now, we're introduced to, in this, in this parable, to ten virgins, or in our language, ten bridesmaids. Now, why ten? Because throughout the Bible, ten is almost always associated with testing. So I'm going to give you a couple of questions, all right? Now, the two tablets of stone, how many commandments were there? Ten, that's right. God was testing Israel's hearts. When the children of Israel were in Egypt, how many plagues were there? Ten, that's right. God was, and he says God was testing the heart of Pharaoh. Now, the children of Israel go into the wilderness. How many times does God test them in the wilderness? I, we're talking about tens. There's a, okay, how many? Hey, all right, wow, Bible readers here. All right, ten. All right, now, in, in Genesis, Laban changes the wages of Jacob. How many times do you think? Ten, ten times, that's right. In the book of Daniel chapter 1, they want Daniel to eat all this meat. And he's like, no, why don't you test me? How many days do you think he got tested? Ten days, right. There's a, a number of days of testing for a church in Revelation. How many days do you think he was testing? Ten days. How many disciples were there? There's 12. That's right. I was just testing you there. All right, very good. Somebody over here did well. And over here, you guys need some. So, <laughs> very good. Now, <laughs> So check this out. These 10 bridesmaids are tested as well. Five of them wise, five of them foolish. And, and the issue was their preparedness. Five had oil and five, different, uh, five didn't. Now throughout the Bible, um, oil is pictured as a type of the Holy Spirit. And that is, is consistent here. And that's why the five foolish bridesmaids are left out. They don't know Jesus. And this is where I, I want to start, um, for the last couple minutes that we have, I want to drill down and give you a graduate level understanding of this, of this passage. This is really important because everything that Jesus has said from the beginning of Matthew 24, when he starts answering the questions up until now, this parable begins to put it all together. And this is the message that he has for his disciples. Now remember, he is speaking to Jews. This is Jewish imagery that he's using. And we don't catch it at first because we are 2,000 years and half a world away but he's speaking of a Jewish wedding. Now, we know that at least one of the disciples, Peter, was married, so they would have understood, all right? Um, in a Jewish culture, when a man wanted to marry a woman, he would go to the fa uh, his father. The father would set a price, what was called the dowry, and he would, the father would set the price on his daughter based on how much he loved her. 
So it was always a high price. Now, what is the dowry? The dowry was money that the father would keep and hold in trust uh, should anything bad happen. And this guy turns out to be a loser. She would come home and she would have money to live the rest of her life. Um, basically, it was like alimony in advance. So being kind of... Um, so the man uh, would pay the price, and then he would go back to his father's house. And the way that it would work is, is that he would go back to his father's house, and he would begin building an addition on the family property so that it could house his family. So he would build an addition. If you have ever lived in Hialeah, you know what I'm talking about. So people are now building an efficiency on the side of the house. And so now, but the way it works is, is that he didn't decide. The son didn't decide when it was done. The father decided when it was done. And the way that it worked is, is that they would, um, and you have, there's, listen, if you tell a young man, hey, once you build this house, you're going to be able to marry your bride and have your, 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 your wedding night. I mean, he's going he's gonna to put up a tent and be like, let's go. And uh, it's like, no, we're not doing that. You're going to do this right. So he would start working feverishly. And then it was the dad who would decide when it's done. And there's all these stories that are told about these young men who would fall asleep in the addition that they were building, passed out with hammer and tools in their hand. And then the father would wake him up and say, buddy, it's time. Go get your bride. Usually it was in the middle of the night. He would enter the town. He would blow a trumpet signaling that he had returned for his bride. The bride and the, and, and the uh, bridesmaids were there waiting. The bride would leave with her new husband for a seven-day honeymoon. And then after, they would come out and they would be presented to the community and they would have what's called the marriage feast. This, my friends, is exactly what the Bible teaches is going to happen at the end. Now, let's start again. The father sets the price for the bride. Jesus, the son, says, this is my bride, the church. The price, his life. It's, it's, it's his death, it's his resurrection. And then Jesus goes, after he pays the price, he goes back to his father's house to build a place. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go, if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I come again uh, to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so now we find ourselves here. He's preparing the place. But then a trumpet is going to sound, and Jesus is going to come get his bride, the church. Now, we see that in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul says, For we say this to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is what the Bible calls the rapture of the church, where Jesus takes his bride out of the earth, for a seven-year honeymoon in heavenly places. And while we find ourselves there, everything that we read about in the book of Revelation, the great tribulation is what's happening here. You see, why? Because God is pouring out his wrath on the world. And you know how people say, man, why is, when's God gonna do something about the evil in the world? This is the moment where God is gonna pour out his wrath on the world. And that's gonna happen, but there's also another issue at work that's really important. 
God loves Israel. Israel are his people. And during this time of tribulation, they are going to recognize Jesus as the Messiah when they see these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. And we're going to see what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, that all Israel will be saved. And once that's done, and all the issues of tribulation from chapter 6 to 19 of Revelation are completed, Jesus is going to return on a white horse with us on horses. And you say, I can't ride a horse. You will learn, all right? And we're coming back where we are presented and we have what Revelation 19 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen, all the things that Jesus said the world would look like before his return are, ap- are happening before our eyes. That's why as Christians, people are like, who's the Antichrist? Do we know who he is? Listen, we're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so we're watching and we're waiting and we're listening for a trumpet to sound. And when it does, you and I, my friend, we are out of here. Sounds pretty good, right? Yeah. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that. We look forward to that day when we hear the trumpet and we're taken up, caught up, because God, you want to do something in us and you want to do something in the world. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be ready, that we would be like the five wise bridesmaids who were ready for your return and that, God, you would do that work in us and everyone that we know and love, that they would come to you and that we would experience it together. And we prayed in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.